Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Whew. Welcome back and Happy New Year, everyone. The Late Night is officially one year old. Since we're already off to a strange start, Axis and I decided a night of modern mythological creatures, or cryptids, was in order. Therefore, we'll begin the night watching Mark Pellington's The Mothman Prophecies from 2002, starring Richard Gere, Laura Linney, and Deborah Messing. And we'll be following that with the best cannibal film from the 90s, Antonia Bird's Ravenous, from 1999, starring Guy Pearce, Robert Carlyle, and Sheila Tusi. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, Axis, Mothman. <laughs> Mothman. <laughs> uh, th- I love how, like, some shows will have fan service episodes, and this was just explicitly the Axis service episode. It's just allowing me to indulge all my Mothman enjoyment. <laughs> uh, this was totally uh, an Axis episode. <laughs> I am just over the moon. Like, let me tell you. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I enjoy the research I've done for pretty much every episode we've that we've done so far. But this one, just getting to open all of the cryptid wiki pages was a real moment of delight for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Yeah. Any any general thoughts? Anything you want to say? I mean, like, because I, I, as you might predict, I have pages of research. Well, I mean, it's based off the book by John Keel, which was published in 1975. Mm-hmm. The film had a budget to box office of 32 to 55 million, and that is not bad. Um, it didn't double its money, but I mean, it still raked in a hefty profit. Um, mm-hmm. So, for those who don't know, I mean, I guess we can say that Mothman was a creature supposedly sighted by multiple residents of Point Pleasant, Virginia, from 1966 mm-hmm. to 1967. And in 2002, the residents of Point Pleasant decided to start having an annual celebration of the Mothman. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, I will say this. I, I have my own Big Bird story, which I guess we'll get to afterwards. But I I had started um, looking into the Mothman when I started studying how to write horror. Um, and that was like maybe 2004, 2003, when I started really doing it. And um, I, my immediate note was always Sandhill Cranes. And I didn't get to see one until I got here to Germany and my wife took me to the Cologne Zoo. I will say that Sandhill Crane bird calls sound a lot like Velociraptors from Jurassic Park. That um, is no, fucking sick as hell. Yeah. No, <laughs> no tape recorder or YouTube video is really going to do the sound justice. Like, you can hear it on a video. It's not going to be the same. The way that it, like, the air vibrations are fucking freaky as shit. Um, yeah, and for those of you who don't know, the reason Moner is bringing up Sandhill Cranes is because that's one of the things that they blamed the early Mothman sightings on, was that, oh, it was uh, maybe a crane and not a birdman. It's a it's a crane. <laughs> so and also the Sandhill the- Crane is the common common culprit right and it's because basically the red spot that they have on their heads Mm -hmm. uh could have been the red spot that the kids saw but the thing was these weren't kids these were technically like older adults and there were four of them in a car so group history hallucination (laughs) right yeah Yeah, we're gonna get into it I, I think that the film's alternative title could have been Letting Go of Mary, which could have also been an alternative <laughs> title to Silent Hill 2. Yeah. 
Silent Hill 2 should have also been called Letting Go of Mary. I really got, <laughs> it's really weird how many times I've watched this film and thought, this has got such a Silent Hill 2 vibe to it, mm-hmm. even though it's blatantly not. But yeah, Letting Go of Mary should have been the, the title of the Mothman Prophecies. Would have been sexier yeah. too. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a yeah. I I'm I'm down for it. And plus, you know, just a little more a little more emphasis on Deborah Messing. I'm very down for. <laughs> yeah, I would like to point out this. Mm-hmm. You know, for those who are fans of the genre, this is Richard Gere's. I mean, aside from Pretty Woman, this is Richard Gere's only horror movie, except for a very small <laughs> uncredited role as Man on TV in George Romero's Creep Show from 1982. Uh, what a notable role, man on TV. Yes. <laughs> so first, I just wanted to talk about John Keel a little bit. So you mentioned John Keel, the author of the mm-hmm. original text of the Mothman prophecies, which inspired the film. So Keel himself uh, investigated a wide range of extraterrestrial and paranormal phenomena over the years and has written just a boatload of books. Um He was originally sent to Point Pleasant as a journalist, though he was researching UFOs at the time, but his attention was quickly turned to the mysterious phenomena surrounding Mothman when he started receiving phone calls with weird predictions. And all of this is what became his most famous book, The Mothman Prophecies. No stock tips, mind you. (laughs) Never the stock tips, never the lottery numbers, just, uh, (laughs) just the inconvenient ones. Cryptids are fucking useless if you're out there and you're listening. (laughs) No! Hey, look, stocks are chaotic enough right now. (laughs) Yeah. Cryptids, Mothman, remember, like, he sees things from higher up and he knows that dabbling in the stock market leads to to a lot of problems. So he's just really trying to keep you safe from uh, Wall Street. I could see that. Hello, Nana. This is Ingrid Cobb. Remember, GameStop, $14 a share. 2020, wait for my sign. (laughs) it's 2021 that's true (laughs) oh god yep 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 that would that would be nice alas Mm. alas indrid cold was not so uh forward thinking So anyway, this this whole experience left John Keel obviously shaken, and in a quote to the Los Angeles Times, he said, quote, I didn't go nuts, but I was very upset. When the bridge collapsed, it was pretty distressing. I was determined I was going to find the answers to this. As it progressed, I became more and more baffled. It took a long time for me to realize that I was dealing with something that the human mind could not understand. There are many things that we will never know. <laughs> yeah. Which... <laughs> yeah, you're right. Distressing. That's that's a very <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like that this really just like sounds like the finale of an X Files episode. Like it, it's it's a, a fun little quote from him here. Like, what um, did you fucking <laughs> run out of word count? Like Jesus Christ, man! It's <laughs> a little more than uh, distressing if the fucking thing's breaking in half. A bunch I of mean, fucking people a... are drowning in the river in their fucking cars. There's an ellipsis in there. He might have said more. I don't know. Uh, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like he might have gone deeper into his personal trauma, but it was not of utility for our purposes. (laughs) Um, Just one side note. Among his books, my favorite description that I saw was for his book, UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse, which Mm. explains that a huge range of paranormal observations across the planet and across history. This includes monsters, ghosts, fairies, demons, all sorts of UFO and aircraft sightings. 
are all part of a mastermind plan by some kind of non-human intelligence that is pulling the strings from the shadows and trying to distract us from their real plans. And I'm unclear on exactly what this real plan is supposed to be, mm -hmm. but after watching the movie, this seems like an incredibly on-brand escalation of the kind of thinking that produced the iconic lines about Mothman seeing things from a little higher up to gain his perspective. So this... True. Yeah, it's... Hearing, basically hearing, the more I heard about John Keel, the more everything I saw in the movie made sense. And I was like, ah, okay, like, I, I get the mind that produced this. <laughs> right. So they, they took a, no, they took a rational approach to what was a very irrational explanation of some mm -hmm. very tragic events. Yes. And some very strange <laughs> yes. events, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, like, returning to the movie, so both the researcher, Leek, which is, again, Keel spelled backwards from the movie, right. and uh, and John Klein were meant mm -hmm. to represent the two different sides of Keel's work and personality, which should have been obvious to everyone except my dumbass. I mean, John Klein <laughs> slash John Keel was right there, and I just, like, was like, la-di-da-di-da, -da, I don't notice anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, also <laughs> worth noting that one of John Keel's friends and collaborators is uh, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, who was one of the other early publishers of Mothman research and the founder of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, that I've been trying to go to for fucking years and keep just narrowly missing. So <laughs> I have inadvertently failed myself in my own research for this episode. <laughs> but I, I swear one day, one day I will make it there and I will, I will perhaps meet Lauren Coleman. I'll report back if I do. <laughs> I want the inside scoop, though. So, speaking of that, Mothman, the man, the moth, the legend, my one true love. <laughs> so I'm going to give the general overview and some of the details that I find interesting. There is a vast wealth of information and of theories, so there's plenty more to dive into with this cryptid icon, if this catches your attention. Um, but I'm going to go just do the little, you know, little overview, give you a timeline, give you a sense of the story. So the first reported sightings of Mothman were printed in the Point Pleasant Register and the Athens Messenger on November 16th, 1966. This is, of course, in the area around Point Pleasant, Virginia and right across the Ohio River. That's the kind of geographic area we're talking about. But this first article is by Mary Heyer in the Athens Messenger, and it is titled Winged Red-Eyed thing chases point couples around countryside. And the article begins, What stands six feet tall, has wings, two big red eyes six inches apart, and glides along behind an auto at a hundred miles per hour? Don't know? Well, neither do four Point Pleasant residents who were chased by a weird man-like thing Tuesday night. <laughs> Which is such an iconic article. <laughs> Oh, Mary Heyer well, saw a headline and she issues, took huh? it. Yeah. Oh, oh, let's fucking talk about that. Mary Heyer was, she was known as like a local oddities reporter who usually had like an inside kind of way deep in the newspaper column. Mary was on the front fucking page that day and for weeks afterward. This was her time to shine. <laughs> so this first sighting 
two married couples were parked at uh, the West Virginia Ordnance Works, an old World War II munitions dump site that was known locally as the TNT. This should sound familiar to all of those who watched the movie, except I guess these four were trying to make car sex even more awkward and un uncomfortable by doing it clown car style. This, of course, this is all conjecture. I have no proof that they were doing anything inappropriate other than wondering why the fuck else you would go somewhere as awful as an old munitions dump willingly. Like, it's either got to be hiding that you're horny or an absurd amount of drugs. That's the only thing I can come up with. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, carpooling uh, wasn't the... invented yet. <laughs> yeah, no, and nobody needs to carpool to the, to the weapons dump either. Right. They're like, oh, honey, let's carpool with the Johnsons to go down and just see if we can get any uh, radioactivity, just like a little nuclear boost for our immune systems. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. So anyway, the couple said that they sped away from the winged, vaguely humanoid figure only to have it chase them down the highway. And a police deputy returned to the site afterwards and found no sign of anything unusual other than, quote, a strange pile of dust, which is an odd thing to leave behind. And I don't know what makes a pile of dust strange. I um, swear to but <laughs> I, I can really hear uh, like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park just going, now that is one big pile of shit. Like, I know. What the fuck are I you know. talking about? A strange right, exactly. pile of dust. <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, like I'm so upset that this was not better like photographed or recorded or something. Yeah, I'm like, exactly. What? Like, was somebody sweeping? Like, I I don't know what made this deputy <laughs> was be like. This white? is the thing. Did that it stuck go out. up your <laughs> nose? Did you feel like you could uh, do anything after you inhaled it? Uh huh. I mean, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. It, it was well, odd. <laughs> Yeah, definitely one of the one of the stranger little peripheral notes in this whole thing is just the strange pile of dust, which does not seem to reappear anywhere else, but made it into that first record. So I I would love to track down that deputy and figure out what the fuck was going on. Perhaps one day. <laughs> so Mary Heyer, again, our, our journalist of previous article, she wrote about the creature again the very next day when six more people said they saw him both in the same area as the first sighting and another rural route on the other side of the Ohio River. So police found nothing again, um, no, not even dust this time, but sightseers started flocking to the area to try to see the creature, which Mary Heyer began to call the Mason County Monster in her next article three days later, which recounted several more sightings around the county. So the more solid information came along not long after in Hire's article, Creature Sighted in Daylight. So this article talks about how a 25-year-old man saw the quote-unquote monster in broad daylight, saying, quote, I never saw anything like it. This thing had a wingspan every bit of 10 feet. It could be a bird, but I surely never saw one like it. And he also said he saw it rise up like a helicopter and fly overhead at approximately 70 miles an hour. So, I mean, a little slower than the 100 miles per hour we said before, but, yeah. you know, you know, you don't always have to go full throttle. <laughs> you know, we're not, sometimes we have performance issues, you know. Yeah, yeah, it happens to the best of us. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, it, this kind of 
lent more credence to what was going on because this was the first time that it was a clear broad daylight view from somebody who seemed like a pretty reliable witness so people started paying a little more attention um and the sightings calmed down for a few weeks but oddities returned on december 12th 1966 when hire's article cheshire people tell of strange sightings chronicled appearances of flying saucers and red and orange lights shining from the ohio river not quite mothman but equally weird i suppose so this article is notable because it was the first collaboration between mary hire the prolific local oddity reporter and our good old friend john keel the new york journalist who came to point pleasant to interview witnesses and further his own research into ufos Right. So, Hire mentions Keel and his appearance in town in this article, and the pair would go on to share work and clearly overlap their interests over the next few years. And Keel later dedicated the Mothman prophecies to Mary Hire and the people of West Virginia. So they both influenced each other's work over the you know over the duration of their research for sure. Mm-hmm. So. Again, in the timeline, sightings dipped down again until the fateful day of December 15th, 1967, which provided local tragedy and, much later, a heroic moment for Richard Gere, the Silver Bridge Collapse. So, Mary Heyer was the first reporter on the scene with the bridge just outside her office door. And Heyer called this the biggest story of her career and continued her coverage over the following years, reporting on the collapse itself, the rescue efforts, and the stories of the 46 people who died. And eventually, in 1969, the new bridge on, in Point Pleasant was being dedicated to on the second anniversary of the collapse. So, all-around badass, great journalist, and lover of oddity, Mary Heyer died not long after her article on the bridge dedication. After fighting illness for weeks, Mary died on February 15th, 1970, at age 54. And I'm sorry that she didn't get to continue visiting UFO conventions, which she did to interview Miss Venus, and sharing Mm. theories of the unexplainable with John Keel for many more years, but of course grateful that she single-handedly provided us with the most complete on-the-ground record of Mothman that has been used as a resource for decades now. Mm. So... Over the 13-month period between the first sighting and the bridge collapse, there were a number of sightings of the creature, a number which which varies wildly depending on who you ask. Conservative estimates from skeptics put numbers down to a near six sightings, while Lauren Coleman, again, founder of the Cryptozoology Museum and author of Mothman and Other Curious Encounters, believes that around 100 people saw our fluffy flying friend, and there are over 200 reported Uh, cases of some types of odd phenomena. So, speaking of, let's talk about weird phenomena. Unsurprisingly, the details of all of these occurrences at the time are a little sketchy at best, but here's a highlight reel of some of the weird shit that was reported. We've got electrical malfunctions, car malfunctions, doors opening and closing on their own, increased general poltergeist activity, I was doing air quotes there. (laughs) Increased UFO sightings, bleeding eyes, dead and mutilated animals, premonitions and psychic visions specifically of drowning and floating Christmas presents. Now, it's hard to tell how much of these rumors, how much of these rumors influenced the movie and how much the movie influenced the more recent records on Mothman, but it's safe to say that spooky shit was happening in Point Pleasant. Now, This is also a good moment to talk about those weird phone calls to John Keel. 
So John Keel started being given prophecies over the phone, which culminated in Keel apparently believing that the entire northeastern United States was going to go through a blackout when President Johnson turned on the Christmas lights at the White House. Instead, as he sat prepped with flashlights and batteries waiting for the lights to go off in his New York City apartment, he saw the news on the TV run the line, bridge collapsed on the Ohio River. So this, I suppose, captures the doubt and disbelief that we see John Klein suffering from in the movie. This kind of feeling that, you know, Mothman is giving you warnings, but you can never quite trust them. <laughs> like, there's this idea of the the unreliable prophesizer, the unreliable narrator, all of the above. Basically, yeah, he I, feels fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, I have a different way of experience of expressing that. My way of expressing that would be Mothman's eyes seem to work just fine, but his mouth doesn't seem to really work too well. It's like, um, it's kind yeah. of like, and, and that to me, because I, I teach a bit about cryptids, um, and, and so my way of looking at it is normally that cryptids are not all anthropomorphic, but they, they mm -hmm. generally manifest in an anthropomorphic shape, and they normally can't communicate by way of speech directly and so yes. it's really funny because whether it's mothman bigfoot the loch ness monster whatever the hell you want there are times where you feel that there is a communication being given it's just mm -hmm. that it's not very helpful and it's neither helpful yeah. to the cryptid nor the other party um it's like a, a mm -hmm. fucked up game of charades where nobody wins and so um mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my experience with it. Yeah. The thing the thing that I really liked about Mothman is that it began well not began, it continued a practice that we in America called legend tripping, which is when people get into their cars or they do road trips, um, mm -hmm. and they don't even know that it I mean like we didn't really even start calling it legend tripping for for quite some time. But the idea is that you get into your car, you go somewhere, and you go and you visit, you know, somewhere where there was a monster or a haunting uh, because yes. you're, you have an interest in it. It's kind of like a mini adventure. And I think that <laughs> yep. that's kind of thing I like it is that there's this kind of Scooby-Doo-esqueness to American subculture um, that 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 mothman uh helped to create i'm certainly not happy about the tragedies uh mm -hmm. but what i am interested in is the sort of atmosphere of mystery that's painted around what ended up being uh people checking out the mystery and mm -hmm. um yeah it's it's really fascinating that that came about you know more of it the other thing that you know the the, the more negative thing that came out during that time was the concept of uh of there being uh, invisible government G-men who were coming out to harass yeah. people uh, because they felt that belief in Mothman was interfering with small business interests. And that was, you know, to me, that was definitely one of those early men in black uh, theories mm -hmm. uh, that definitely informed on, on the men in black mythos. And I'm not, you know, it's it, it yeah know, there's it's, a lot of that that interacts with with right. the early mothman stories right. as well like i i'm yeah. i didn't even touch that because it's such a, a another huge can of worms in it its is. own right but that's but uh, just to summarize that for listeners what ended up happening was um there were reports and you, know, you can go you can wiki them google them there were reports where people said they worked for the government i don't really believe that i think they were just thugs that were probably paid by um mm -hmm 
by either you know t- people in the interest who are out of town in their you know in their business uh, because that's like a classic Scooby Doo you know plot line where mm-hmm. you know anybody who was talking about the Mothman uh, basically got intimidated or there was a, like no you didn't see that you know um, that didn't happen you know you're not supposed mm-hmm. to talk about that you know shut up about that because you know that's getting in the way of of the town's peace or you're disturbing people. And so um, it was this kind of idea of government censorship, uh, but it wasn't really government uh, censorship, or it was never Mm -hmm. proven to be government censorship. It connects back to all that other, you know, craziness that one would associate with, like, you know, pre-World War II brown shirts or secret police or something like that. And it was just this weird, there's this other component to the mystery. And... um, it, of course, it produced the opposite effect. It didn't make people less curious and clam up more. It made them more curious. And, yeah. uh, you know, more people came and ended up, you know, trying to investigate this mystery. So it was, um, you know, it was definitely an, in, another interesting facet of this mm-hmm. of this weird series of events. Like, um, I think that the, the moral of the story is like, you know, uh, fear and panic produce... I'm, very interesting um things for the horror genre because um even this annual celebration that they have in point pleasant is not the only one of its kind there's there's festivals for the beast of boggy creek and different bigfoot Mm -hmm. and different cryptids i mean yeah i mean this has created a whole tourist industry it's it's a niche tourist market it is but horror fans love i mean i think the one thing that that it proves is that horror fans love any excuse to celebrate and explore the genre because it's a celebration of the unknown and the spooky yeah i mean if the if the whole like men in black thing shows anything it's that we love to look into the stuff that we're told we're not supposed to look at and horror is like a you know a version of that it's all of the stuff that we've been told is taboo and like oh spooky scary and so we're immediately like yeah let's spend all our time on that right because life is boring as shit right mm-hmm. see also the yeah. tree and the see also the forbidden tree in the garden of eden you know <laughs> you can do whatever else you want don't eat from that tree why not mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure like flashing way back to kind of where you started that with the idea that cryptids don't really talk to people yeah that was a a nice segue into the next point about john keel's phone calls yeah because uh there are significant doubts that these phone calls were really anything paranormal um so one of the people who actually who originally popularized the mothman stories was author gray barker a guy known for his ufo writing and also stretching the truth for a laugh and a paycheck So Barker's friend, John Sherwood, says that Barker took part in several hoaxes, including fake UFO footage made by dangling a saucer from a fishing pole, like I'm sure many children have done, and pretending to be a government official to convince a man that he'd been the victim of an alien abduction. So just like just the starting line is that these are the things that Gray Barker did for profit, you know? (laughs) So. Yeah, this is the kind of guy we're working with. Sherwood has also claimed that Barker faked the phone calls to John Keel, pretending to give him prophecies to fuel his belief in Mothman and the mysterious events he'd been observing in Point Pleasant. So those calls seem a little less spooky when you imagine a sniggering UFO writer on the other end instead of an otherworldly higher intelligence. Right. 
And Keel never confirmed that, obviously. Uh, that would undermine his book as well. <laughs> but it's neatly in the interest of both Barker and Keel for those calls to be real rather than an elaborate hoax. So it's unclear, you know, A, if this theory is true, and also B, how much Keel might have been a victim in this situation or he might have played along. All all big question marks in this kind of a version of events that Sherwood has theorized. Again, the stuff of Scooby-Doo legend, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So much of this really feels like a Scooby-Doo episode. I, I will say that my, from my own personal experience, people are always like, whenever I tell this story to people, people will be like, they'll look at the Sandhill Crane and they'll be like, Psh, it's a big bird, who the fuck cares? And I have my own story that I'm going to throw in here. My wife and I, when uh before we moved to cologne we lived in a little town called essen we had a beautiful apartment it was on the top floor uh three of a shared you know apartment house um there were three stories we lived on the top story and we were overlooking a german graveyard and a german graveyards are very different than american graveyards american graveyards are flat they're green usually have like a plaque or a stone or two they're not you know you might have a cypress tree here or there or an elm tree that's not what a German graveyard looks like at all. A German graveyard is the stuff of, of horror movies. Like, it, it's beautiful. It's gothic beauty. So what it is, um, it's about, you know, ours is about, I'd say, uh, three streets or two acres big. Um, you could get lost in the fucking thing if you weren't careful. Um, whenever it snowed, it looked like the snow was blowing upward because of how high up we were. Mist would come in. It was very... It was. It was not something where... Um, it was not something where you would not get creeped out in the middle of the night. You know, we, you know, Germans light prayer candles, which are glowing <laughs> red candles, right? And so there's like, at, in the middle of the night, it looks like there's, a, you know, dozens of red lights below you. And um, so even the normal part of this graveyard looks beautiful and creepy and mysterious. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why Germans we moved there... Germans don't seem to have a lot of... Yeah, not a lot of subtlety in things being scary as shit. <laughs> right. So, and the thing that... And, you know, my answer was when we were picking out apartments, I was like, quieter neighbors you will not find, you know? So this oh, was... absolutely. This was ideal. And so... Um, there were lots of times where my wife came home very late from work and, um, the, you know, it was foggy and misty and, uh, we did, you know, the castle that she and I, my wife and I got married at, it was not far away. Um, and the castle also was, a, you know, a few acres, another few acres of land with, you know, large birds and foxes and other things. And, um, it was really funny because, you know, uh, just... I think it was like one night, maybe in the middle of November. Um, you know, I was in the middle of cleaning, moving things around. And I hear something, you know, we had a terrace that overlooked the graveyard. And we had a big ass, you know, set of glass doors and big glass windows. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I went, I heard like a banging sound and I thought it was like, you know, you know the barbecue had fallen over or something had happened to our uh -huh. Weber grill. I go outside. I shit myself. I just shit myself. I walk, I, okay, I just want you to know, there's a partition of glass between me and this thing. There is a heron that's like five and a half feet tall, just a little taller than Axis, looking at me. It's not fucking moving. It's just like looking at me. The lights are off in the kitchen. It's looking at me. I'm looking at it. And I'm kind of like, food, 
water, money, whatever you want, bro. Okay. Drugs. Drugs. <laughs> yeah. I do not trust a bird that's fucking bigger than me because that's just a dinosaur. Right. Exactly. It will like it will beak slap me and then take my shit. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't want any trouble. You can have whatever you want, but the way, but like it just stood there and it stared at me. It just stared me down, mm-hmm. and it didn't move. It didn't move for like ten minutes. It was just standing there, giving me a That's look, so and funny. it's just, yeah, yeah. It's funny when you're telling it. It's creepy as shit when it's happening. Well, I mean, it's also amusing to me from an or- like ornithology perspective, just because all of the the herons that I'm used to that are in the area like around here are very skittish birds that will, you know, if you come within a half mile of it as it's, you know, just peacefully standing in a lake, it's like, ah, oh, I've got to go. My beautiful ethereal experience has been sullied by your mortal presence. I must go. That's true. So like this idea of like the heron on your terrace just being like, fuck you, bitch. What do you want? Is right. Deeply amusing to me. <laughs> it's it's really amazing that it just stood there and looked in. And part of it was, uh-huh. part of it was, I'd had this conversation with um, a family member, um, one of my in laws who is a veterinarian, and we we were talking about like why birds fly into windows. And she said to mm-hmm. me, "Well, they can't really see through the glass. They're they're not really developed that way." But you know, to me at the time, it felt like it was staring at me. It wasn't oh, like yeah. it, it had a very much like I'm looking at you, you're looking at me kind of moment. And so for me, it was actually pretty scary. So like I could imagine that if you went down to like a place, I don't know, to fool around on a Friday night and then maybe you were got a little high or a little drunk, a little tipsy, or it was just dark. All it could of the have above. just been dark. <laughs> Adrenaline's going anyway. And then you're mm-hmm. driving your car and you see something weird in the headlights and there's already red on this thing. And it looks really mm-hmm. big and it's not and it's not you know, discontinuing <laughs> its pursuit of you. I can understand mm-hmm. how you might freak out. Right? Yeah. Speaking of, that reminds me of something that happened to me literally this past week, which is uh, I woke up one morning, and by morning I mean afternoon, and uh, you know <laughs> I was a little a little groggy as as one is, and I wake up, I try to go to the bathroom. Thankfully, immediately realize that it, the bathroom is out of toilet paper, and I'm like, <laughs> so I go downstairs, and so I'm in the downstairs bathroom, which I of course normally am not at this time of day, and as I'm just like sitting there and kind of like spacing out and all sleepy and peering out the window I just see these large black shapes begin to approach out of the trees because I just have a window that looks directly onto the forest behind my house and all of a sudden these just hulking shapes start moving towards me through the woods and my sleepy little lizard brain immediately was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Oh, no. Oh, no. It was a bunch of turkeys. It was just a bunch of turkeys right. coming out from the woods. But those suckers are massive. And for just this brief moment, I was like, this is it. I'm about to be spirited away by some big demon coming out of my woods to murder me. The so, poultry like, absolutely. Returns. If... Yeah, if you're, you know, being caught doing something a little naughty and suddenly there is a literal five foot tall bird beast in front of you, I can yeah. see how you might be a little alarmed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think it so goes as, as much as I people. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like, and there, that's not even with, without counting if you were tired or you were sleepy. There was a point where mm-hmm. I was... 
again, same apartment. Uh, we had very large, thick curtains and um, for the bedroom because uh, our you know our bedroom was facing the sun and um, like particularly bright sun on a top floor. Mm-hmm. So we had very dark, thick curtains, and so I had had uh, a nightmare because I come from New York. And sometimes we have very large moths in New York Um, because just like everything else in New York, we import our animals and sometimes we don't mean (laughs) to import them and we Uh basically have atlas moths. Um, And I remember being like, the first time I saw one, I was was in Flushing and uh, to all my Queens people, hey. And, um, (laughs) you know, there was, uh, I remember the first time seeing an atlas moth like in a handball court and you just see it up in the the corner and you're perched up there and you're like... Dude, that, is that even possible? And you're like, I don't even want to know. I'm just going to keep walking. Yeah, I mean, um, if you think a luna moth is big, like, wait until you see an atlas moth. And then you're that's like, what, ah, yeah, fuck. An atlas moth is huge. And so I, I saw mm-hmm. one. And then um, one of my friends, her aunt, found one. Apparently, she just, you know, she was very calm about it. She put a pin through the thing's head and then, like, made it into, like, a little statue with, like, the rest of the plant ornaments. And I was like... <laughs> Holy shit, her balls yeah. are tw- 20 times the size of mine. And then, you know, I so I have experience with moths in general, but I know that that's mm-hmm. about how big they get. Now, at the time of this story, my wife was putting Band-Aids on me um, that were butterfly-shaped, and she's putting them on the back of my neck because I had sort mm-hmm. of like a sore neck at night. Uh, greatest moment ever. Uh, probably one of my most embarrassing moments ever because I think I woke the entire apartment because I was having like a bad dream. <laughs> And I woke up Uh and I was already groggy and I felt like I took my shirt off and I felt like something was flapping against my back. And I felt like, oh, my God, Atlas Moth in Germany, Atlas Moth in Germany. And I'm like (laughs) smacking my neck. I'm falling into the curtains. I'm feeling the curtains against my head. I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And I'm I'm not exactly like an unhairy man. So, you know, I'm half Greek. So I have all this hair on my back. And with one fucking violent motion i basically wax my neck and my back all at once by ripping what i assume is a monster moth off of my back and i like give this like you know arnold schwarzenegger wannabe and predator fucking run like and i'm holding it breathing heavily huffing puffing expecting to there to be gore look at the band-aid and go oh i'm a fucking idiot (laughs) you know like like I'm sure that's happened to each and every one of you <laughs> listeners, and you guys know what I'm fucking talking about, and that is normally your fucking cryptid, and you know it, you know? Like, I don't want to kill the Scooby-Doo fun for you, but, like, yeah. there's just no way. <laughs> yeah, know? this is this is very true, because, like, I... I- <laughs> I like I tend to be a skeptic about many things, but like I was a skeptic of the explanation theories about them being like, yeah, Mothman's just a bird. Because I was like, how do you how do you see a heron? Like how do you see a crane, the skinniest bird and like known to man? And be right. like, yeah, that's a hulking man beast. But you know, this sets things in perspective a little bit. Also, similarly, there were also stories about how somebody shot a freakishly large snowy owl around the time and we're like haha we've done it we've killed the mothman um and it, it sightings continued the, after that but there is for those who are interested one can always google group hysteria because there are things that have taken place mm-hmm. like that in germany and they've also taken place in america too mm-hmm. uh what i think it's called uh we call it ergot which is a type of it's, it's a very common way of getting food poisoning uh back in the day mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's basically a fungus that grows on wheat and it is hallucinogenic mm-hmm. to humans and yeah. it's poisonous to us as well. Um, but there are people where they'll eat bread, bad bread, and they'll start tripping balls. Or then this not now, obviously, but years ago. But you know, uh, ergot obviously still very much exists. It's also known as um, so it's called New <laughs> Anthony's Fire. You know, it's the you know obviously Saint Anthony was uh, one of the first people who was haunted by demons, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's the reason why it's called that. It's Saint Anthony's right. Fire. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is the classic like Salem witch trials explanation. Is like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's actually it. I mean a lot of things associated with witchcraft, uh especially where people are accused and pro- and persecuted for being witches yeah. that is absolutely associated normally with a big fucking misunderstanding coupled with prejudice or discrimination mm-hmm. of some type. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I mean it it plays on the the fears and the prejudices and stuff that already right. exists in your mind and amplifies everything and right. then turns that into a horrifying group phenomenon. Yeah, the Monarian <laughs> moth, right? Like my Monarian moth. It was on my back. It might have, you know, was it a band-aid? Mm-hmm. Was it a moth? A monster moth? We don't know. We may until never I ripped know. It, yeah. Until I waxed myself and then realized, oh, I'm an idiot. Yes, no, it was I mean, just a band-aid. I mean, there could have been an Atlas moth hiding there that just conveniently flew out your window yeah, sure. and uh, it's been conning yeah. you this whole time. Yeah, I your mean, there is... Your own personal little cryptid. That is half true. And, and that's the funny thing. Between lies and the truth and half-truths, half-truths cut a lot deeper than lies because they're based on things yeah. where you see something, but it's not necessarily what you see. Because if you're saying to me, I don't see how a crane could look like the Mothman, I could see how if you had double vision at the time, okay. it could have, if you had double vision. Oh, Yeah. If there was something wrong with your mirror, if your mirror was vibrating perhaps just the right way, I could see hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds and hundreds of For ways sure. that you could turn a crane into a mothman. But the yeah. other funny thing is that it becomes a pattern after time, right? What you're seeing is you're mm-hmm. seeing a pattern of of sightings. And that's that's the other aspect of it, which is more than one yeah. person saw this and it's uh, it goes it addresses what we call the mandala effect right which is where people take something again a half truth cuts deeper than a lie you take a half truth and it can distort reality in such a way that you start to see things that aren't necessarily there or they are there but they're not quite what you think they are <laughs> you know rod sterling would always say there's nothing in the dark that isn't there when the lights are on the rest of that is, <laughs> the rest of the stuff that it doesn't really get to is, you know, your mind has a tendency to make shapes out of things in the dark <laughs> that are there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's the other problem. You know, if you're a little kid mm-hmm. and you're laying in bed late at night and you're scary, you know, one of those bigger tropes is that you'll see, you know, tree branches that are scraping against your window. Right. They'll start to become skeletal fingers, you know? Yeah. And especially once those stories have been told to you and you know what you're looking for, it's easier to find it. And it's actually really funny because, <laughs> like, I, I go into that a bit, like, a similar psychological effect when we'll, we'll talk about Ravenous. I'll get into that more. But yeah. who knew this would be such a psychology episode? <laughs> oh, it definitely is i think it is because the closer we get every time we verge closer and closer to a subject in horror where we have something that's very approximate to being human or an anthropomorphic version of a human being Mm -hmm. we get a much closer you know we get a much more especially where a lot of people believe in it and you know they you know a whole group of people believe in it 
there's definitely a uh, it gets a lot deeper like also you know going back to the tree analogy um you know you can go backwards and you see you can also relate that to past experiences that have traumatized human being like the smalls lighthouse if you go back to our lighthouse episode you know uh-huh. there was kind of a come hither kind of motion that we referenced right i mean i bet that guy never slept right with trees ever again you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm willing to bet that gentleman mm-hmm. fucking got a saw and kneeled right out his window and cut the branches <laughs> short just to make sure yeah yeah, yeah don't you fucking dare right. yep yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the human mind can only um, take so much. Yeah. 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 Kind of speak. Yeah, sort of like that. Because we we talking about, you know, things seeming like more than they are. And also we talked about Men in Black. Um, I wanted to talk for a second, too, about Injured Cold. Because mm-hmm. he's a figure that comes up in the movie. Injured Cold, in general, like cryptid lore, is an entirely different entity than Mothman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more commonly known as the Smiling Man, and there have been scattered sightings of uh, this kind of unnatural and surreal-seeming tall man in a suit, both in Point Pleasant and New Jersey. Um, and he's been theorized more generally as an alien presence or some kind of poltergeist. And again, separate from the Mothman legend, but also coming up around the same time that a lot of those Men in Black stories were coming up. So there's there's a potential intersection, visually at least, between, you know, another tall, creepy guy in a suit, except this one's a little more supernatural. Uh... And then the other uh, kind of big theme I wanted to bring up with Mothman is the link that some people have made between Mothman and Native American histories of the Thunderbird. So oh, yeah. the Thunderbird is a yeah a super common figure in Native American folklore across much of North America. It's a giant bird known for caring for the upper world as opposed to serpents for the underworld, um, and summoning thunder and lightning with a flap of its great wings. And there's an article that you can find from Daniel V. Budion um, that showcases a piece of Native American art attributed to the Penacook tribe in what is today New Hampshire. And this dates back to the early contact period between 1550 and 1630. So in this article, he shows a picture of this little 10-inch tall figure cut uh, and shaped into a sheet of copper that was most likely repurposed from a copper kettle. And this has been shaped into the figure of a large bird. And I'll definitely, we'll post a picture of this with the uh, Mm -hmm. the upload on Instagram. Um, So it looks quite like a swallow-shaped bird viewed from above, that classic like flying bird silhouette, except it has what looks like two eyes cut right in the chest. And these were used as lacing holes, but if you view them as eyes, the figure bears this really striking resemblance to the witness catches of Mothman from Point Pleasant. Hmm. So basically imagine the, the difference between bird silhouette and then you put two giant dots on the chest and suddenly it's like, oh, it's a, a face somewhere else. So it, it makes perfect it, it, sense. Basically his, yeah, his whole article is talking about, you know, is this perhaps an early sketch of Mothman, you know, from, from 1550? Now, I personally would bet that the similarity of this one particular artifact is a coincidence because... If these holes were filled with laces as they would have been during use, they wouldn't have looked like eyes and it would just look like a bird again. So it seems unlikely to me that this particular piece was meant to to be used with that kind of, you know, visual representation. 
But regardless, there are a lot of people who have connected the figure of Mothman to the thousands of years of legends of the Thunderbird. Right. While the two seem to share little in the way of behavioral commonalities, it does seem short-sighted to ignore the connection of one giant-winged figure to another who has a track record of thousands of years of stories in the same territory. <laughs> so definite overlap between the two figures. And then the, the final note that kind of uh, spins off, we've, we've talked about how, you know, Point Pleasant has become this tourist destination for Mothman. They throw an annual Mothman festival and they have, of course, the incredible Mothman statue, the giant silver beast with a big old butt. Um, they do also have a 24-7 live stream of the Mothman statue called the Mothcam that you can look up on YouTube and watch anytime you need a little extra cryptid in your life. So I have it saved. It's just always there on my YouTube. A little bit of Mothcam. You can see what's going on with Mothman today. You know, if, yeah. if you and need since a little pick-me-up. <laughs> and since Axis has been talking about it with me all, you know, since the last watch along, I always listen to Baby Got Back from Sir Mix a lot every time I, I hit the cannon. <laughs> I just jive. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my god, what an afternoon. Just you, the Mothman statue, and baby got Sir back. Sir Mix-a-Lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I th thank you so much for letting us delve into my, my most beautiful boy, the the Mothman, um, during this, this special belated January episode. Um, should we talk about talk about a little uh, little cannibals some some, some cannibals <laughs> i mean a little man eat man yeah um yeah. <laughs> ravenous yeah, little long pig. i mean mm -hmm. oh man we're, i mean i want to say some things first about this cause, like you guys <laughs> know i love numbers i've yeah. um this is like how and like trick-or-treat mm -hmm. Where... Yeah, no wonder I loved this one and Houseu oh, so much. Like so immediate mad. corollaries. I got so mad after I was done watching it because it's an <laughs> amazing movie, and that's just it. It was an amazing movie. I loved it. I was like, "Who's the composer? Damon fucking Albarn from the Gorillas <laughs> and Blur? What the fucking shit? He's on it." And the credits on this thing are insane. Like, the credits on this thing are like, how the fuck did this get like nominated for an Oscar? The director was Antonia Bird, the late Antonia Bird, who is one of the mm -hmm. best fucking film directors in film. Fuck horror. Okay? Fuck horror. This is one of the best directors in film. This was a woman yeah. who could like fucking Mortal Kombat fatality reach into your soul and rip your <laughs> testicles and your spine out and like fucking eat your spine like it was shrimp cocktail. That's how good she was. She was just amazing. Like she, this she is how Motor expresses love. She never got the credit that like Spielberg gets, you know. But mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that like almost every other major director knows of her. Or if you're gonna be a director, you should know her name. Um, but the thing that blew me, I was like, it's amazing. I was watching it, and then I went back. Of course, I did the mistake, which was I went and I started to look into the reality of how it was received. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. budget got twelve million box office it made just over two and i was like the what and i was like well why and i was like well here's the reason why because fox studios barely released the movie it only i think it made until it in less than a thousand theaters and Jeez. they mismarketed it uh for teens um, what? Yeah, they mismarketed it what? for teens. 
just to make this just a little bit more bizarre, because I'm going to get the bizarre thing out of the way before we start talking about this like adults again. <laughs> Disney now owns this, technically. I just want to say, <laughs> Disney Disney now owns this. Uh-huh. Which is just the other, the other, like, the cherry on top of this fucking insanity cake, which, whatever... <laughs> Disney now owns this. So Robert Carlyle is once again a Disney princess. You know? <laughs> like, it, like I loved him in Once Upon a Time as, as Rumpelstiltskin. Oh my god. <laughs> this when was one of princess. the best horror movies that was ever made. Whenever I have to talk about 90s horror for the show, people have their opinions. Because, you know, most of my friends yeah. were born in the 80s. And so I'll hear like, oh, you're watching Ravenous? Did you put it together with 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula? I was like, No. <laughs> insane no no i didn't do that it's like that's that's something in its own class we'll get to that later but yeah whenever i sit and i think about this movie i have to really calm down to talk about it because of how much potential was wasted because it had an all-star cast Mm -hmm. incredible composer incredible incredible set design amazing script an amazing script and an amazing director just like one of the world's best directors and I sometimes wonder if, like, if that's the magic of horror. Like, Todd Bounding's Freaks, also. Something where it was an amazing idea. It did not get traction till way later. Houseu, an amazing mm-hmm. idea. You know, in the horror community, we get a lot of um, heated arguments about whether fans should have a say in the way that movies are made. I have had confrontations with other film critics about it i'll give my hot take on it which is that i don't really give a shit about your opinion if you're a film critic because you're paid to write for a magazine i give a shit about the person who (laughs) makes almost no money they have only 20 bucks to spend and they have to go they want to go to a movie theater and enjoy a movie theater experience that's their 20 dollars, which they're going to have to sacrifice on popcorn and sitting in a theater where the floors are sticky and shit so i say to the film critic how dare you tell them how they should spend their money the way that I see, and if you're like, well, you know, I don't think that that should inform anything, then I'm like, my answer to you will be, if you don't think that your opinion changes why people would go into movie theaters to watch movies, A, I would say, why is anybody paying you to do your job? And B, why would anybody pay to yeah. read the magazine or whatever like, it is that you write for? Experience. Like, it's just, yeah, but it's, I've it's had a ridiculous that. thing to say. I and, hear that from Just like from the, a sheer like performer perspective, from an artist perspective, you can be telling the most important fucking story in the world, but if you don't tell it in a way that people can understand it or want to hear it, then it's useless. Right. <laughs> like, you, there has to be an awareness of audience, and if you don't accept the audience as, you know, a critic, then what's the point of what you're doing? <clears throat> Precisely. Precisely. And so, yeah. going back to that, this is one of those classic examples of, if you look at Trick or Treat today... And you look at it, you know, it's one of those cult films where it should not have been a cult film. It should have been a mainstream film. Mm-hmm. And it's movies like Ravenous and Houseu that kind of testify to this, where we're leaving money on the floor and we're screwing the fans at the same time by not pushing films yeah. like this. And, and tell, I mean, really, for anybody who wants to talk about mm-hmm. feminism and horror, this was a female director who was very talented. This was, mm-hmm. this was really one of the, arguably one of the more important film directors in the genre of film and filmmaking and she got shafted i mean like how there yeah. isn't more writing about this blows me away right so 
to me, this is one of those things where I say the fans should every, you know, have every right to voice their opinion. There was, you know, a few years ago, there was this one story where they wanted to do a found footage uh, version of a very famous slasher film. I won't mention the franchise here. I'm not going to argue with the director about it, but it got killed in its crib because the fans basically went, we don't want a found footage of this franchise. The director then basically because that person wanted to make money and they didn't want to pony up their own dough, they wanted the studio to pay for it. They basically went on a big tirade, called up all their film contacts, and, and cried like a big baby for as loud as they could for, to the hills, saying things like, you know, the fans shouldn't have anything to say, which is utter garbage. The, the fans have everything to say about it. If the fans want good quality film, then they're entitled to that because that's their money that's ultimately paying for it. That's what pays for the studio. If you're not a director, and you want something, do what Alfred Hitchcock did. You know, if you if, if the studio doesn't want to back Psycho, mortgage your house, risk it, put your money where your mouth is, and then go do the film. Other than that, shut the fuck up and let everybody else, let the game continue playing out the way it is. It's, yeah. you know, just because you're a director and you have a vision doesn't mean you're, you're no more entitled to your vision than the fans are entitled to their good quality evening. So... With that, I think that Ravenous is a major testament to that argument. Like, it's probably... Yeah. that Ravenous is the mic drop to that argument. So with, mm-hmm. with all that... <laughs> yeah, with all that bullshit said, I think this, this is probably the best cannibal film of the 90s. Uh, yeah, this one defied so much expectation for me. Like, this is one where, like, I typically sit down and, like, watch the trailers of the movies you send me. Like, the, the list that you're like, here's what I think we should watch this month. And I'm like, okay, I sit down and I watch the trailer. Just to, like, get an idea of, like, what kind of headspace I should be in. When you sent me this trailer, I was like, oh, my God. Like, watching historical men at war is perhaps my least favorite film trope. <laughs> like, right. I am guaranteed to be bored by historical men at war. So I was like, I was sitting down like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm gonna have to do this for two fucking hours. Instead, this was the most fun goddamn movie. So this movie took so many things I should have hated and mm-hmm. made it so good, so good. There was all so much subversion of expectation in like my personal, you know, my personal preconceived notions, but also all of the the plot points that we we're working with, just so masterfully done. The thing that blew me away was how much um, Antonia Bird allowed other actors to improvise. Um, mm-hmm. For those of you who watched the watch along with us, and of course these are all spoilers here, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, you guys yeah. know the show. We're all about spoilers. <laughs> um, there's this whole scene where Robert Carlyle as... Yeah, I mean, we don't really know if Ives is Calhoun, if Calhoun is Ives, yeah. or both were fake identities, and the next TV reboot of Hannibal is Robert Carlyle as the immortal Wendigo. God, um, I wish. Me too. Robert Carlyle um, improvised his whole scene in front of the caves. So that whole moment where he's oh like God. breaking down, doing the Lamas you know, badger Uh digging, finding his knife, and then going all buck crazy. All him. That's all Carlisle, you know? And yeah. those, that's and one the of the things scene, I... And the whole ending was yes. was made up by that's, Guy Pierce and Carlisle as well. Like, that's right. <laughs> two of the most masterful parts in there were made up by the actors with full permission from Antonio Bird, who was like, yeah, you motherfuckers know what you're doing. <laughs> and, and, and Axis, who was the writer of the script? You know, while oh, the writer of the script? The writer of the script was, in fact, Ted Griffin, writer of Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah, so, like, 
this isn't a guy who didn't know how to write a fucking story. No. Okay? <laughs> but again, there are times where like Tom Savini and Friday the 13th is another great moment where there were just like, you know, you're a great writer. I think I have a better idea. And it actually mm-hmm. works. Um, yeah. This was definitely one of those moments where the cast were like, no, that's not how it ends. <laughs> and the director's like, what do you mean? And they're like, no, we think it ends this way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's it just, it worked so fucking well because like I've been in the position of the director and of the writer, like, and of the, uh, the actors and I guess also the writer if you're talking theater. Like, yeah. it, there's this real pressure that comes with not wanting to change like the integrity of somebody else's vision like right. okay i should say there is if you're somebody who respects whoever wrote your piece of sure, <laughs> your piece sure. of work so like it's a huge burden to like take on that risk and be like yeah let me take the authority to state that my vision is better than what was originally written yeah. in the script <laughs> but man did it fucking work out like they it was just so well done by writer director and actor to work in such perfect three-part harmony to create what you see happen and on screen. composers and the composers mm. oh too. my god yes yep 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 right i oh mean my and, god. and the, the two composers it was <laughs> pianist michael nyman probably one of the best minimalist pianists that ever lived and and damon albarn and it was really amazing that the other thing about the, this movie that made it such a strike of lightning is how it affected everybody's careers. Like, uh, I would also say this was the best Wendigo film of the 90s. Now, I know that okay. there are people who scream at me and go, what, you know, Moner, what about the Silence of the Lambs from 1991? Actually, those people won their awards and they deserve them. That's totally true. But everybody swears to Christ up and down on a cross that that is a psychological thriller and a psychological horror. And, um, you know, I would agree that that is also a fantastic cannibal film. But it's not quite the same. We don't, you know, we don't really have the same atmosphere. Uh, this film, you know, Ravenous, brought us to a completely different place where we were really in the thick of things, right? I mean, I made. A, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of. Um, I mean, certainly there's there's a lot of similarities in the films, right? I do. I definitely feel that Ravenous and later informed the Hannibal TV series uh, because of its Wendigo. Um, mythos. I definitely feel that the Wendigo mythos that we saw in Ravenous influ- had a, definitely had some sort of influence on the Wendigo manifestations that we saw in Hannibal, the TV series uh, with Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal Lecter. But the way that the movie affected everybody's career was crazy. Like, you know, after it was done, Michael Nyman was like, you know what? Fuck it, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm done, you know, I'm going back home. Damon Albarn went on and he did, uh, first he did Blur and then he did, you know, The Gorillas. He was just like, you know, I think I want to be a cartoon hologram. Okay. You know. I'm going to fucking do it all. I did my horror movie and now. Yeah. I did my one horror movie. What's left but to become a cartoon. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't really shocked by any of the decisions of anybody after, you know, the film. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that the only person who didn't get the best deal was Antonio Bird. I felt like Antonio Bird had yeah. deserved a lot more credit. And it's just something where when you look at that movie, yeah. it's just a testament to her genius because she always takes you to very uncomfortable places. She had worked with Carlisle in the past and you could see that, you know, Carlisle, the thing with Carlisle. Yeah, Carlisle's the reason she was on this project. That's right. He, he referred her to right. it. Right. Three weeks in, they'd fired the director right for having mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh carlisle <laughs> was the one who went you know i know somebody who's actually way more talented and they <laughs> yeah. gave her a curl and uh, lo and behold it worked 
Um, I will say that Carlisle's part in this, and I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but I felt like Carlisle cast a shadow on Pierce because, I mean, we know Pierce from mm-hmm. Memento and, and you know, Prometheus and, and so many other films mm-hmm. that he's been in. Um, I mean, even in Iron Man 3, he was fucking brilliant. And that's really saying God, something considering that. that. <laughs> considering that it was Iron Man 3. Um, yeah. But he did, you know, again, and also that Ben Kingsley was there too along for that shit show. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, it was it was still, you know, Pierce is one of the best actors, you know, in the, in the genre working today. You know, in the film genre mm-hmm. working today. Um, but Carlisle just has always had this magic because he has this really mm-hmm. crazy range that eclipses everyone else because he has an, a, an amazing talent uh, for pretending to be a coward. Uh, you can see that in 28 Weeks Later when he leaves his wife for dead. You can see that in Once Upon a Time when he leaves his son for dead. Mm-hmm. You can see that in 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 uh, in ravenous where he basically doesn't pretends to not want to go into a cave because he doesn't relieve spooky memories he always does this this i mean i think it's kind of really well right like saying that robert carlisle kind of is the shining star here i i think it's also a sign of the success of guy pierce as well like it's i think it's the nature of the script because guy pierce's character like is ostensibly the hero but I think part of the whole allure of the script is how much more interesting the villain is than the hero. Yeah. It's a thing where, you know, you're technically like, you're like, yeah, obviously killing the cannibals is the thing to do because cannibal bad. But at the same time, there's this incredible allure to that whole fucking speech that Carlisle gives at the end about, you know, the 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 reach of Western expansion and this right. and that and like the benevolence of the cannibal essentially like there's this real raw appeal to what he's saying and you have to feel that pull and the only way you do it is because he's so fucking good yeah. at making the idea of being a cannibal sound like a good thing yeah. and if Pierce was just as alluring <laughs> and charismatic it wouldn't work right so like they strike such a good balance yeah it's it's I've seen that once before. I've seen that with Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate. I've seen that once before where there's 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 a guy who's basically playing you the whole time. Um, and mm-hmm. that I really like that about Carlisle, you know, because, okay, so, you know, just to go back a, a tick here, um, the, the premise of this film is that we're talking, you know. <laughs> oh, we, should we talk about what yeah, the I movie is? Should, right? now that we're, so, yeah, should we? <laughs> we start back in the Mexican-American War. And Guy Pierce plays a gentleman named Colonel Boyd. And, um, you know, he, he basically wins a medal for cowardice because uh, he went out, the, mm-hmm. you know, the soldiers started fighting and he just decided it was a good time to take a dirt nap while everybody else was getting shot to death. <laughs> then they picked up his body, put him on a meat cart. And then, you know, his all of his the rest of his platoon was, you know, his dead platoon was kind of like bleeding into his mouth while the flies were buzzing. And somehow in there, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how it happened, but he kind of lost his shit got off the meat wagon and then started snapping everybody's neck and shooting them and fucking took the fort like he was Lawrence of Arabia. So, you know, his his commanding officer, what you know, figured out the whole story and was like, okay, isn't this well, a catch-22? he didn't figure out the whole story. It, it's, Guy Pierce, like, Boyd tells the story at every step of the way. He will tell anyone who will listen that he is a coward, but nobody wants to hear it because that's right. bad publicity. Yeah, it's the fine art of knowing when to shut the fuck up, right? It's like, yeah, yeah which he, he does should not, not have said anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, the, his commanding officer was like, okay, so 
yeah, I should shoot you <laughs> for the fact that you laid down during the battle, but you won the you won the fort. He's like, so mm-hmm. yeah, you're not staying here, so yeah, I'm so gonna get give a medal you the and get super the fuck shiny out. medal and a and a steak <laughs> yeah. dinner. And uh, oh, I'm sorry you couldn't keep it down. And um, <laughs> and we're gonna send you up to the Sierra Nevadas. So. For anybody who doesn't know the Sierra Nevadas, it's a lovely place. So um, you know, th- the Donner Party got stuck there. Dr- Jack Terrence drove by there with his family before they got to the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't exactly say like you know. It's like the it's like this is um this is kind of like where Oregon Trail ends badly for most players. Yeah, you know, this is like it, of the time. this is a place that's beautiful <laughs> in the way that the Bermuda Triangle is beautiful. Beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, beautiful in the way that Syl from Species is beautiful, too. You know, it's, <laughs> it's some hot shit, but mm-hmm. she'll fuck you up, and then she'll eat you, and then she'll fuck yep. you, and then she'll eat you again. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what it is. And so the Sierra Nevadas are this place in the story where they, you know, they have a nice little fort there where they send you to, uh, it's a dead-end job. Um, you know, uh, so there's basically, uh, you know, abandon all hope. All ye who enter here should be hung over the fucking door of the fort. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's basically two two Native Americans who uh, Jeffrey Jones, actor Jeffrey Jones, said uh, came with the place. Um, a David Arquette who is uh, completely high the whole time, and God bless him because he's like one of the only chipper people there. Um, yep. You know, um, there's the 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 colonel who's in charge of the fort, who's just you know trying to drink him stoop, and you know he's trying to get himself to liver failure as quickly as he possibly can. There's a gentleman named, named Toffler who who keeps writing religious hymns, and we can't wait for him to die. And I was so happy when he Moner did. can't, yeah. Moner can't. <laughs> I would happily listen to his sweet songs all day. <laughs> God bless you, Axis. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. I'll burn. <laughs> yeah. That's probably my second favorite part of the movie is like, they're so close together. First is Carlisle freaking out. The second is 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 Toffler dying. And I was like, oh, thank God that happened. The smile of glee on your face at that point in the movie is something the <laughs> listeners will tragically miss. <laughs> so yeah, what ends up happening is um, this uh, merry band of misfit uh, soldiers are basically, you know, they're, they're humdrumming along in their damnation. And... Um, a, a a man who identifies himself as Calhoun, uh, Reverend Calhoun, uh, collapses uh, after, and he says that he has not eaten anything for he hasn't eaten food for three months, and he he words uh-huh. that sentence very carefully, and, uh-huh. and they're like, he's like, we ran out of food after a few weeks. I thought you said you hadn't eaten for three months. He's like, no, I hadn't eaten food for three months, and so uh-huh. him and the rest of his camp were supposedly with a evil man uh who was their leader who is a colonel ives and colonel ives uh, apparently killed and ate other people but there was the possibility that there was a female part of the uh of the troops still alive there and so jones's character decides to take everybody back there and um you know i won't spoil too much of it there's some sleep licking which is delicious and then uh, they get to the cave, and we find out that Calhoun is is actually 
uh, a psychopath that he's lured the soldiers into a trap and he kills everybody except for good old Boyd, whose cowardice saves him yet again. And um, then he eats one of his friends. Good old Boyd. Well, I mean, friend is a very strong word for it. He eats this <laughs> asshole private soldier who's who's well built and uh, probably a good feast if you're stuck in a hole and there's nothing else to eat. And um, yeah. Then Boyd goes back and finds out that uh, Calhoun is, in fact, Colonel Ives. Or at least that's the way they leave the story. And Ives's scheme is to create a troop of cannibals, uh, which are actually Wendigo. Colonel <laughs> Ives comes back, explains that... Um, that he's, you know, creating a troop of cannibals, and Boyd doesn't really go along with it, and the long and short of it is Boyd and Ives die in a bear trap holding on to one another. With, in a loving you know, embrace. It was, it was very warm and fuzzy, you know. And, <laughs> I mean, what they were wearing was warm and fuzzy. It was horrifying. It was such a good sweater. Oh, my really God. Was. I'm going to knit sweater. that fucking sweater, I swear to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. A beautiful story. It's definitely not a teen movie. Um, like I didn't really see like I I didn't see Heath Ledger showing up to do that like that like if they were like it was like a Heath Ledger movie like Heath Ledger's Joker Joker, maybe (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly like Heath Ledger's Joker or Heath Ledger is in 10 Things I Hate About You because those are two totally those are two very different animals (laughs) right so yeah yeah I feel bad for any poor teens who went to go see this as their summer date night flick (laughs) yeah if this was like your first date movie you know Mm mm-mm yeah, it's kind of weird because, like, when you're with someone in a theater, you're almost eating the other person's face to begin with. And when that's actually going on to the side of you, that's kind of a bit of a distraction, yeah. right? It's a like, don't tell me how to kiss, not huh? the movie to make out to. Like, absolutely not. All right. It's, it's not a... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we when we were talking about the Sierra Nevadas, you did uh, briefly mention the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. And I just want to mention because... A lot of people have made an association between Ravenous and the Donner Party, and it, the stories don't really match, and I knew that, but I did my cursory research. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you, as somebody who read the entire Wikipedia page on the Donner Reed Party uh, right before bed last week, let me tell you, number one, don't fucking do that. <laughs> do not make the mistake that I made. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And number two, they hardly have any commonalities other than the initial artifice of a group taking an advertised but untested new shortcut on the trip to California, which leads to disaster. And that's about where the similarities end. But it's an absolutely awful fucking story. If any of you feel like reading about some real nasty real life survival horror. So (laughs) yeah, just a terrible hole to go down. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, Although some great about songs Wendigos? about it from Raspy Tina. So. Oh, yeah. That's true. That is true. Shall we talk yes. about Wendigo? The Wendigo. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, God. I love Cryptid Month. <laughs> I mean, the first time I came across the Wendigo, I had no idea what a Wendigo was as a kid. The first time I came across it was, it was the 90s, and a friend had brought in a a reprint of Hulk 181, which was the first appearance of Wolverine, which is also one of the first times people see the Wendigo show up in the comic books. And mm-hmm. I remember watching it, looking at it, and going, okay, I've heard of this before, but I don't think that this is what a Wendigo is. And mm-hmm. 
you know, it wasn't maybe until my 20s that I started to really understand what a Wendigo was and that the Marvel representation is not exactly accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there has been a, like, a meteoric rise, I would say, of, of the Wendigo in, like, popular culture. Yeah. And, and obviously with varying degrees of accuracy, I was shocked to discover that there was the appearance of a Wendigo character in My Little Pony in mm-hmm. 2011. Yeah. Like, of all of the weird-ass places for this to pop up, and obviously they do a different degree of accuracy in regards to actual Native American folklore. It's a pretty loose term, which is thrown around for any cannibalistic creature. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it's all over the place in media, as, as I've come to realize very quickly. <laughs> My takeaway from it across literature was that it really felt like hunger was one of the main Mm -hmm. themes of it and i really like the way that the character martha um portray you know the way she summed it up nicely wendigo never gives wendigo only takes Mm -hmm. and so there you know the thing that i liked about wendigo was the the concept that the hunger was was just the main the, the sort of the the center, the centering of the, or the cornerstone of that character. Um, You know, when I look at vampires, I always think of war and I think of a, you know, I always think it's, it's greed, but it's usually a war likeness to the character. So it's somebody who's killed over and over again, and they're still alive because they just, they have this everlasting thirst for war, or at least the early yeah. stories feel that way. There's also like a sense of like mastermind yeah. to it, like the idea that it's it's a thoughtful, it's a methodical process. Right. Whereas Wendigos, it's all about impulse and the crazed and right. <laughs> I think the of, uncontrollable. I actually think a lot about one of our favorite um, characters, uh, or one of our favorite foods from Maine, which is the lobster, because the lobster <laughs> is. Um, the lobster is one of Ugh. my favorite foods. It is also, um, people say things to me, like I w- we had a friend in Maine a couple of years ago and she's like, oh my God, I like eating lobster. They're so tasty, but I feel so bad eating them. And I'm like, fuck why? They'd eat each other. And she's like, what? And I'm like, why do you think Those the rubber are bands are there? Roots. And she's like, yeah. cause they, they don't want you to get cut. And I was like, no, they don't give a shit about you. I was like, what happens is. If you leave one lobster alone in a tank for a few hours, let me tell you what ends up happening if it gets its crusher claw rubber band off. What ends up happening is it flips its neighbor over, basically rips its friend's stomach open and starts eating. And then it's going to repeat until there's no more lobster because that's how lobsters are. Lobsters are fucking cannibals. Yeah, there's a, a a thing it's in the in the in the lobstering industry yeah. which uh I I have more insight into than I ever thought I would. Um but <laughs> one of the one of the things about it is there's a a size regulation which mm-hmm. is actually that if you catch a lobster that is over a certain size you have to put it back. And it's this idea of like ensuring that the successful and the larger kind of lobsters get to continue being part of the breeding population, which makes sense. Yeah. There are some people that I have heard who, with these big specimens, especially the ones that are really enormous, that are really ancient, or like the ones that might be like a blue lobster or an uh, an unusual color or something. There's they're this idea rare. where people are like, one in a yeah, million, they're gorgeous. one in ten million, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really weird lobster color varieties. You'll get chimera ones. We're talking about the North American lobster. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, good point. Um, Yeah, but so I've seen ones that are literally half yellow, half blue. Mm -hmm. Like, there are insane color varieties. Anyway, with a lot of these ones that are, like, really old, really, like, dinosaur-like, really colorful... There will be people who are kind of not in the know who are like, well, shouldn't we put that like in an aquarium to make sure we keep it safe and protected? I'm like, oh, you poor sweet thing. If that Titanic monster has made it this far, right. if it's made it to this size, it will destroy everything in its path. Right. <laughs> like, there is nothing that will touch that creature. Right. <laughs> it will live forever as a titanic beast of the sea right. until it becomes its own kaiju. Right. Like, come on. <laughs> That's, that, it, until it becomes a lobstrosity. <laughs> Absolutely. He will be just fine. Like, bless yeah. your soul, but it will be just fine. And that's the funny thing. Like, lobsters are... They're cannibals by nature. And so there's mm-hmm. three ways you can catch a, a, a lobster. One of them is illegal, so I'm not going to list it here. So the two <laughs> ways that you catch lobster are salted herring and, uh, you guessed it, lobster. So you mm-hmm. use lobster as bait for more lobster. <laughs> yeah, so I always think of lobsters. And lobsters is something where it's you're, you're looking at it and it's just nature, right? It's just... It's the hunger of nature. Nature's very mm-hmm. hungry. I mean, it's not exclusive yeah. to lobsters. There's also crayfish. Some shark will eat their own young if they don't get the oh, fuck yeah. away quick about quick enough. A uh, hamster if it's uh, stressed enough. That's you right. know, like everything. Right. Like, yeah. I, and that's yeah. and that's human beings, and that's the funny thing. It's human beings romanticizing nature. Normally, the horror fan who's read something like The Great God Pan knows better than to romanticize nature, but that's mm-hmm. just it. Uh, nature is not a romantic thing at all, and it's something where, uh, you know, unless we're talking about flowers blooming out of a corpse, you know, in a Baudelaire poem, nature is seldom, you know, yeah, ever romantic. It's just something where nature yeah. has its good moments and it has its bad moments you know you got orgasms yeah. of food and then you've got death and disease on the other side of you know just yes. as you have a summer you have a winter there's an upside and there's yeah. a downside that's actually like a, a good intro into kind of the, the native lore because it's not really a, so much of it like what i'll talk about comes down to the idea of balance and the balance you mm-hmm. find in nature so let's talk a little bit about what what the Wendigo is, where it comes from. So the Wendigo is a creature that appears in the stories of the Algonquin and surrounding tribes in the northeastern uh, areas of Canada and the United States. So the nature of the Wendigo is generally regarded as actually pretty similar to what was described in Ravenous. Um, in many tales, it is a human who is overcome by hunger or greed and turns to consuming human flesh and becomes a Wendigo. They are then overcome by a desire to keep hunting and eating humans. And as with many creatures and native histories that span across tribes and time, there are a lot of variations on this theme. So the Wendigo can be a standalone monster or a spirit that possesses humans. Um, In some stories, the person doesn't even need to eat human flesh to become a Wendigo. Even extreme greed or gluttony can be enough to figuratively open that gateway for the possession by the Wendigo spirit. So, like, a, gre- a character flaw of extreme greed can be enough of a corollary to gluttony to basically fuck you over and turn you into cannibal. Um, even prolonged contact with a Wendigo could also be enough to turn a person into a Wendigo themselves. So you're saying that Army Hammer's co-hosts are in danger? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
So the descriptions of a Wendigo's behavior and appearance are where things really begin to break away from the charming and svelte Colonel Ives. Right. So the classic description of a Wendigo's appearance comes from Basil H. Johnston, who is an Ojibwe scholar and teacher mm -hmm. from Ontario, who says, quote, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from the separation of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. Which is fucking terrifying! <laughs> like, clearly designed to, to play on human fears. It's all of the, the uncomfortable things about a corpse put together into one creature. And so this makes perfect sense with how their character is described as well. So they are described as being consistent, just always described as being always hungry, never satisfied by the flesh they eat and constantly searching for their next meal. Correspondingly, some tribes describe the Wendigo as a giant, a creature that grows bigger with each person it eats so that its stomach is never full and it constantly has a bigger and bigger appetite to feed. So really visually fueling this, this metaphor, <laughs> this concept. Which, now this is obviously a, a steep contrast from Colonel Ives and the other cannibals who are being healed and rejuvenated by their human happy meals and appearing more full of life than ever. And also them talking about storing meat and judiciously metering out a sustainable food source. Right. Now, obviously, I suspect that things would not have gone so carefully if they had free reign to continue their, their plans. <laughs> but... Still, like they they seem to have much more self control than the uh, the typical Wendigo did. Um, so there's there's a lot to talk about with the Wendigos, but we we talked a bit about psychology, obviously, when we talked mm -hmm. about Mothman, and I want to touch a little bit on the idea of Wendigo psychosis. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the this is one of the odd things that you will pretty much immediately run into if you research Wendigos. Um, it's a pretty controversial kind of theory. So this is a historically documented psychological condition in which a person, typically one affected by extreme hunger, becomes overcome by the compulsion and desire to eat human flesh. It's described as a culture-bound syndrome, which means it specifically affects members of native tribes who are encultured with the stories of the Wendigo. So it's a specific phenomenon only really documented in tribes who like grow up hearing these stories and that's why it's part of their own psychology. It's a fundamental, you know, kind of tenet of their their own culture and their identity, which it's which is theoretically why it's kind of an easy pull point for a psychological issue to kind of come from. Mm. Um, so there are many documented cases of this kind of behavior, especially from that good old early expansion era and the Oregon Trail times. Mm. Now, the big problem with this whole concept is that it became a point of fascination among white Western psychologists and anthropologists who obsessively documented the phenomenon with such an air of exoticism and exaggeration that it's really hard to take many of their accounts seriously, or at least without considering a heavy amount of cultural bias. It's the same way that we've talked about how, like, basically 
white armchair anthropologists really like to jerk off over cannibalism and weird <laughs> sexual traits and stuff like right. in other cultures and be like, oh, what are the exotic other doing today? <laughs> and write a whole thesis on this and without any real sense of viewing things from a non-biased cultural lens. Um, so on the other hand, there are accounts of the of this behavior that come from native tribal members who see the condition obviously through a much different cultural lens. Um, so there are native tribal members who have basically seen people go through this and been like, yep, we've seen it happen, Wendigo psychosis, and but they view it as like a manifestation of a cultural practice, kind of this this sense of historicity kind of becoming real. Um, essentially, I don't want to go too deep into this because I am not a licensed psychologist by any means, but tread carefully with this theory um, because it is very controversial um, mm -hmm. and uh, a sensitive issue for a lot of people. But it's good, but to, it's a really, it's good to acknowledge that the issue Yeah, exists, right, so. exactly. Like, I, I wanted to acknowledge it. And it's a really interesting psychological and paranormal interaction, similar to people who believe they have lycanthropy and other similar conditions. So right. it's always, it always interests me personally to kind of look at the interaction of horror and personal psychology um yeah what are you gonna say i was actually gonna say that one thing that came up last friday was i ended up in a group of people and uh one of the questions that was asked to each of us was what's the strangest thing you've ever eaten i actually won that when i said locust brownie um but what had blown <laughs> me away was the all the other things that I had eaten and I had never really realized it because I've eaten crocodile, mm -hmm. I've eaten alligator, mm -hmm. I've eaten snake, I've eaten ostrich. And um, there's this kind of weird conversation that always comes up in these sorts of questionnaires where people start to say things to me like, don't most things taste like chicken after a while? And I, <laughs> and I have to admit, there's just a moment where I don't know, I, I, I it's usually... It, it's strange to me because I don't really, I think that that's an oversimplification. Um, I think that people try to oversimplify the topic of cannibalism from time to time. And, and that's the other thing, because I'll hear people say things to me like, oh, you know, you know, like eating a person, like it's probably just like, you know, it's probably just like eating chicken. I'm thinking like, mm, no, no, I don't think it's anything no. like eating chicken. <laughs> no. Uh, I think that that's a very, you know, because I hear people say shit like that to me all the time. They'll be like, yeah, you know, I think it's like, I don't think it'd yeah. be such a big deal. And I'm like, nah, you know, like there was a, a soccer team, you know, way back, you know, about 10 years, 15 years ago. You know, they got, they ended up having to resort to cannibalism. They got, they were in a plane crash in the mountains. They were going to freeze to death if they didn't eat each other. Um, I, and I'm pretty sure that if you ask them what they thought, that they would probably punch you in the face for saying, like, you know, it Yeah, there like are chicken. so, so many qualms with that. Like, yeah. A, even as a lifelong vegetarian, like, I know there's a difference between white meat and red meat, like, yeah. just in the fundamental sense. Like, B, any of the fucked up psychology that comes with that. C, biologically, all of the ways that the human body is built to reject eating human flesh, like the literal yeah. brain diseases you can get from consuming it. Right. <laughs> and that's just it. Like, we're not supposed to eat each other. And that's that's actually just it. Because when I brought up the lobster example earlier, I said that, you know, mm -hmm. it's one of those examples of nature not being romantic. I also want to say that this is also one of those things where I find that human beings are incredibly naive and re like that, mm -hmm. like everybody always likes to joke, like, Haha, there's lots of people I'd like to kill and eat. It's like, haha, that's really yeah. stupid. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, like, don't be a fucking idiot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Leah, if yeah. you think it's a good idea, it's actually not. It's just... Yeah. Uh, and it's so, not because I um, want to cut in line at the Sizzler for the human buffet. It's because, <laughs> you know, it's actually, you know, you get sick in reality. It's not really nearly as sexy an idea as you think it is, mm-hmm. you know? And I thought yeah. that that's, I really felt that that was what the Wendigo really represented in its illustration, mm-hmm. which is that if you look at the Wendigo, it's not human anymore. And like, you know, people no. will be like, oh, it's more human than human. No, dude, it's, it's, oh, no. it's a disease. It's not a happy mm-hmm. thing. It's a curse. Yeah, you know? very much. Like, And that's, I, I think, in the way they talked about that in the movie, it, it's the sense of inescapability that comes with mm-hmm. it, too. Like, the idea, especially the that came from Martha, of like, oh, no, like, once you've been tainted, you're fucking tainted. Like, he yep. was like, how can I fix it? And she's like, you don't. You mm. run. Because <laughs> that's something that doesn't get fixed. Right. Um, yeah. See so also an American Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, speaking of, of all of that side of things, um, let's talk a little bit about other terrible things, Western expansion. Um, mm-hmm. We joked a bunch about colonialism and Western expansion in the Americas during the watch long, and as it turns out, a hell of a lot of academics saw the same parallels that we did. Yep. So there are a lot of texts you can look at. That's the the kind of original seminal text on it is Jack D. Forbes' uh, book, Columbus and Other Cannibals from 1978, which was a super influential text in the American Indian movement. Um, but the, the super relevant article that I found pretty quickly uh, is by Brady DeSanti of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. This article looks great. I honestly have not read the whole thing because I simply do not have paid access to academic journals, but the selections that I read were extremely applicable. So this article is titled The Cannibal Talking Head, the portrayal of the Wendigo monster in popular culture and Ojibwe traditions. And this article considers the intersection of what the Wendigo represents to the Ojibwe people and how it appears as a wider trope in popular culture. So For the Ojibwe, the Wendigo is all of the things that we talked about already, but it's also really specifically tied in with the cultural concept of Mino Bemadizuin, which literally means the good life. Um, It's this concept of the good life that's inextricable from the idea of balance. It's a philosophy that encourages individuals to find balance in their communities, in nature, and in themselves to create a life which is rewarding to them and the others around them. So this obviously is a stark contrast to the concept of the Wendigo, a creature that's totally characterized by consuming everyone around them with an insatiable hunger. DeSanti actually begins his whole paper with Colonel Hart's particularly apt quote from Ravenous, it's lonely being a cannibal, tough making friends. Um, And then he pulls all of this back from a wider lens, comparing the Wendigo to American colonialism and Manifest Destiny. Uh So this idea of the moral imperative and divine inevitability of colonialism has been a hugely destructive reality for Native cultures around the world, and the Americas were no exception. So DeSanti emphasized Colonel Ives' big speech at the end of the film, where he describes what Western expansion will bring. The quote is, uh, Thousands of gold-hungry Americans over the mountains in search of new lives. This country is seeking to be whole, stretching out its arms, and consuming all it can. And we merely follow. 
So Ives paints their cannibalism as a mere side effect and even a potentially beneficial curtailing factor in the ravenous spread of colonists spreading out across already occupied land in a desperate search for wealth and power. I just want to interject one thing that I hadn't really mm-hmm. caught before. Yeah. Hail Columbia was what was playing in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Hail Columbia is what we play when we inaugurate our presidents. Hail Columbia <laughs> is... And it was a very dismal, sad version of Hail mm-hmm. Columbia when, <laughs> you know... Yeah. So this movie is obviously written from a modern perspective, but this whole speech seems like such a prescient monologue given the impending consequences of Western expansion, forced migration, reservations, murder, warfare, and most saliently in my mind, the intentional extinction of the wild buffalo and the deeper meaning as an army U.S. Army colonel at the time said, quote, kill every buffalo you can, every buffalo dead is an Indian gone. So... It was the ex- like literal planned extinction of an entire species with the implied intention of Destroying trying to extinguish culture. the Native American people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Try to entirely sap their culture, sap their way of life, and if not outright murder them, which I think was the ultimate goal, at least assimilate them into white society and purify them, essentially. Hugely fucked up, clearly. Um, And look, while I'm obviously not going to say that Ravenous is the pinnacle of Native American representation in film, I mean... It's definitely not. But it's definitely a fair... Right, right, like the one... The Native American guide character basically takes over the role of the one black character who dies first. (laughs) He's immediately kicks the bucket. But I will say for it, the writing here displays a clear self-awareness of the way that American colonialism has absolutely cannibalized the country. The whole thing is obviously a giant allegory, and it's, it's... nice to see in a certain way (laughs) like it's nice that it can fuel these conversations and it's i I think it's especially a shame that in with this context in mind that ravenous never got the bigger audience that i think it deserved because i think it would have been really fucking nice to have these conversations in the 90s instead of you know still desperately trying to bring them up now and i just like to put the tagline here mismarketed by fox (laughs) yeah one more thing mismarketed by fox yeah i was gonna say fox's biggest mistake was tommy loren no it was this (laughs) it's got just a whole bucket load of them yeah Yeah. well i mean if you like these movies i guess the 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 next question is what you pair them with i mean ravenous Mm -hmm. to me always felt like it paired with pretty much anything that had nicholas cage in it because it was just so (laughs) Batshit off the walls crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, Vampire's Kiss from 1988 with Nicolas Cage is something I would have paired Ravenous with. If you're looking for something else that you can pair it with, uh, I also feel that American Werewolf in London um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with David Naughton is another good one. Um, I don't really feel that it pairs necessarily with Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, as far as the Mothman prophecies go, um it is really weird finding something in the same vein i actually did feel that that i've watched it with uh the silence of the lambs uh from 1991 um i did find that that was a decent matchup let's see and pretty much anything with sci-fi and aliens yeah 1993's fire in the sky is another one i would have watched it with 
Uh, and mm -hmm. that's, yeah. So pretty much anything with a uh, sci-fi, you know, fear the stars when you look up at the sky kind of, of background. Um, you know, th those are the... Those are the things you could also mix and match them with. I do think that there's a lot of things that these two can mix and match with. I think they're pretty versatile. I just think that they have mm -hmm. a very specific power. So it's just... Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're, they're very strange ducks. I mean, they're, they're brilliant films, but they're strange ducks. So Probably why I liked them both. Yes. Yeah, and then in terms of uh, talking about good causes, mm -hmm. as we like to do, we we brought it up a little bit. We found kind of a an interesting intersection between um, you know the idea of memorializing the wrong things in times of war, uh, combined with the uh, incredible potential of statues that you can see if you're looking at Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So I just want to talk briefly about the movement to get rid of and replace Confederate statues. Um, with this is something. Statues. Ideally, look, that's that's step two. Like, step one here is please replace fucking Confederate monuments. Do not memorial, like, do not leave monuments to racists standing. Now, I'm not going to dictate what you have to put in their spot, but I would Spider. heavily suggest, <laughs> heavily suggest your favorite personal cryptid. Obviously, mine is Mothman, right. glorious silver ass and all. Right. So, if you're looking in the uh, to find, you know, what's going on in your area, I would point you to the website of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a fantastic group. They do a lot of really amazing, amazing uh, racial justice work and awareness work, huge activism influence. But they have a fantastic map, an interactive map on their website of all of the public symbols of the Confederacy that are uh, uh, currently posted in the United States. So you can scroll right in and see what's there in your state, in your area. Um, obviously, there are areas where there are, there are more concentrated, but there are Confederate memorials in my state, even though Maine was part of the fucking Union. What? So go take a look, see what's in your area, and maybe how you can change that. It's a, a, a nice, you know, little uh, quarantine project if you're feeling antsy. Call your fucking representatives and be like, hey, can you do something about this bullshit? I'll help. Right. <laughs> And I mean, but also I would recommend there's there are maps and maps and maps of different cryptids. Mm -hmm. So if you're picking the one for your state or your city, I would mm -hmm. say just as a recommendation, try to get as accurate as you can. I mean, this is of definitely course. a project where if you can, if you contacted most artists in the horror community, I can think of one or two who wouldn't want to participate in the co in, in the project, but the the vast majority. Of of, yeah. hor of horror artists in the community would definitely be proud to you know to participate in something like that, um, mm -hmm. you know the alligator man, the frog man, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just they're you know bat squatch or the slide mm -hmm. rock bolter. There's just hundreds and, and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of things that would look way way better than a Confederate statue. There, absolutely. And, and I mean, if, if you give it a Nicki Minaj happen, booty, I will. Take, <laughs> oh my god! All the better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I will say if if any of you manage this, if please keep us informed. Yeah. Um, but I will be first in the line in, at the uh, ribbon cutting of your your local uh, you know Jersey Devil kind of monument. <laughs> <laughs> I will be over the moon and so proud of you. <laughs> we'll both be proud of you. All right. So then we hope you had yeah. a good time. Uh, we'll be back soon with the February issue. Um, yeah. And in the meantime. Uh, you know, stay warm and, uh, yeah. Look out for cryptids. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Hey there, it's Sophia with the January Horror News. It is finally the start of a new year, and many people like to begin their new years with resolutions. Perhaps this is finally the year you're going to go and find a new home, or go on a diet and stick to it. As we just saw in the films for this month, make sure that whenever you travel to or from your home, you keep your eyes on the road. And whenever you sit down to eat, you should know exactly what is on your plate. And now, the news. The No Sleep Podcast is open to short fiction with 1,200 to 2,500 words and regular stories that are 2,500 words and over. As long as your story is, quote, really scary, you can send your writing off to submissions at thenosleeppodcast.com. Make sure your story, when read aloud, is no longer than one hour. But if you're more of a script writer, you can also send your scripts off to the No Sleep Podcast. Make sure that your script stars at least two characters, but more is preferred, and that it falls between 20 and 40 minutes when it's performed. Also make sure to write it as an audio drama that does not need visual cues to tell the story. No cover letter is required, but take a look at their guidelines at thenosleeppodcast.com backslash submissions. The Dark is a monthly publication that continuously seeks horror and dark fantasy stories that are 2,000 to 6,000 words. Aptly named The Dark, this magazine is mostly interested in unpredictability, so their stories are anything but normal. When you submit, only send one piece at a time. If your story is picked, they will pay six cents per word on publication for First World Rights. See their information in detail at thedarkmagazine.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines backslash. Three Lobed Burning Eye Magazine, abbreviated as 3LBE, publishes speculative fiction twice a year, once in the fall and once in the spring. They are interested in magical realism, fantastique, slipstream, interstitial, and the weird tale. They prefer stories that are full of feeling, diverse characters, and have unique styles that are not too experimental. If your story expands the genre, this podcast could be the one for you, but save the gore for another place. They are open to submissions of short fiction for their upcoming spring issue. Acceptable short stories fall between 1,001 to 7,500 words, but they prefer stories that are shorter and actually between 2,000 to 5,000 words. 3LBE also likes flash fiction that is at or below 1,000 words. Find more information at 3lobedmag.com backslash submissions.html. Keep in mind, you can only submit through their online form. Compensation is $100 for short fiction and $30 for flash fiction. The Nightmares and Phantasms podcast is looking for short stories of 1,000 to 6,000 words. Whether your story is scary fiction or terrifyingly true, this podcast is open to your work, as long as it has not already been published in audio format. You are allowed to submit to this podcast once a month with one story. If your piece is chosen, you will receive $5 for compensation. Find more information at horrortree.com backslash ongoing hyphen submissions hyphen nightmares hyphen and hyphen phantasms hyphen podcast backslash. If you're all set, just send your submissions to lompub at hotmail.com. That's L-O-M-P-U-B at hotmail.com. Is your manuscript finally ready for a publisher? Consider Flame Tree Press, a publishing company that is now ready to take on speculative fiction novels. They are most interested in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, supernatural, crime, mystery, and suspense, and they want to share stories with general readers through all channels of the book trade. 
If your manuscript falls between 70,000 to 120,000 words and has not been self-published, they are excited to see what you bring to them. Find more information at flametreepublishing.com backslash submissions.html. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on The Late Night, you can write to monerlawrence at hotmail.com. That's M-O-A-N-E-R Lawrence at hotmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.